0: Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, we have Rachel Fazio. Rachel is the Associate Director and Staff Attorney for the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute. She received a BS in Conservation and Resource Studies from UC Berkeley and her law degree from McGeorge School of Law. She has been a practicing attorney for over 20 years fighting logging projects on national forests. She is now spending most of her time working on federal legislation and public education in order to keep our public lands forests standing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Josh. Happy to be here.
0: Yes, so the issue of wildfires and forests, obviously those are intrinsically linked as well as the threats to them, which are not necessarily what people might think. So let's just get right into it. Wildfires are, are bad, right? They're terrible for forests, right?
1: Uh, wildfires are terrible for communities, um, but they are not terrible for forests. They are a natural process that is essential to maintaining forests on the landscape.
0: Yeah. So that's the number one misconception, right? Of course, we see these flames. We see our favorite places disappearing. So we think, and we're like, oh, this, this is a terrible thing. And then obviously it is a threat to human beings. It is a threat to communities. So that's That's for sure, but it's a little more complex in terms of a fire in a forest, the the language of destruction and stuff like that. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what these fires are actually doing in the forest?
1: Okay, well, currently in our Western forests, we do not have too much fire. Even though we have more fire on the landscape than we had in like 1970, um, we have less on our landscape than we had pre-fire suppression. So we are not in a circumstance where we have too much fire. Um, Another thing that people don't really realize, especially because on the news channels, they show the flames and everything is very scary, is that most of the fires that are burning in our forests, um, actually pretty much all the fires that are burning in our forests, are burning mostly at low and moderate intensity. And that means that almost no trees are killed or, you know, less than half of the trees on the landscape are, are killed by the fire itself. Um, very small percentage of the areas that are burned, even in the largest fires, are burning at high severity. Um, so you don't have to look at the news and read the headlines and think, oh, my God, 200,000 acres of forest has just been completely Destroyed. I mean, there are even people out there who think that trees explode. Mm. That does not happen. Um, they, you know, large trees are, are actually not combustible. Uh, the most that gets consumed on a large tree is uh, a few millimeters of bark and then the smallest twigs and the needles. Um, so the fire is not converting our forest to some other ecosystem type it is simply creating heterogeneity which is just a mix of different habitat types on the landscape and that is a fabulous thing for our native biodiversity
0: right so it's not just that it's not bad for the forest. It's that it's good or we could even say essential. It is literally a part of the forest ecosystems as wildfire. They need the fires.
1: Yes, they do. Um, It would certainly be preferable that these fires start by lightning strikes um, Mm -hmm. rather than by human ignitions. Um, Unfortunately, you know, over two-thirds of our actually three quarters of our fires that are burning are started by humans. But even though the ignition source has changed, that does not mean that the fires on the landscape are bad for the ecosystem.
0: Sure. Of course, climate change is making it so the conditions are changing, right? So there's a lot more dry temperatures, heat and dryness, right? So is it possible that over time we are going to be seeing more of these potentially large fires or is this not really anything out of the, out of the ordinary?
1: Uh, No, climate change is definitely having an effect. Uh, but because we are at such a deficit for fire in our forested landscapes, we haven't hit the tipping point yet where we're having fires burn in these forest ecosystems outside of the natural range. A variability for when they would otherwise burn. Um, so we're not having at this time that type of compounding effect on these ecosystems. Um, so climate change is definitely heating up the planet as temperatures rise. Um, in certain areas, we are going to have hotter uh, conditions that are going to um, reduce the amount of water in the system and create droughts which in turn will stress plants and make them more susceptible to burn if there is an ignition. Mm -hmm. Um, So as we enter the era of climate change, getting a handle on human ignitions should be a number one priority.
0: For sure. And I think folks are all concerned about that, right? We don't want to have a lot of arson fires or accidental fires as they tend out to be that are creating more than would naturally occur. But you're saying there has been a deficit because we've done a lot of fire suppression. So even though we're seeing literal plumes of smoke and stuff like that, that's a real concern for us human beings. But if we're thinking, oh, that the poor forest, that's not necessarily a, a well-placed concern, you're saying?
1: No, it's not. Um, our forests are resilient to fire. They have evolved with mixed severity fires for, hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, We have, you know, there's genetic memory stored in these ecosystems that that we haven't even encountered. And I understand that people get extremely concerned because these are places that they grew up going to and visiting, that they've lived in, that they love, and they're being transformed by fire, most certainly. Um, But they... Are not being destroyed, and the best thing that we can do for these ecosystems is let them adjust to the changing climate on their own. Um, like I said, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of years of genetic variation in these forests. Um, there are trees and plants that are more adapted to surviving hotter temperatures drier conditions and those are the plants and trees that are going to thrive in this era of climate change so oh go ahead
0: no no keep going
1: so you know we need to keep that in mind and we need to put a little bit of trust in nature um and stop and just stop really just stop doing what we've been doing for the last hundred years and give nature the chance to adjust to the climate conditions that we humans through our bad behavior have accelerated and created.
0: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. That that really lays it out there. So you, like me, have walked a fair amount of wildfire landscapes and what occurred to me Basically, sometimes I've been out there literally when things are still steaming and then up to years later, is the forest recovers. The forest always has. It it knows what it's doing. Nature knows what it's doing. It's been doing this for millennia, millions of years. So what I've seen out there is the forest recovering very quickly, certain tree species coming in or meadow grass coming in. You see all sorts of insects birds seem to love these burned areas because the snags are full of grubs. So I've seen these areas that people are like, oh yeah, it was a disaster. And then I go out there. I'm like, yeah, this is definitely areas with burn, but it's full of life. And then here's the rejuvenation of the soil. It's giving the new generations of trees a chance to to go out there when you look at certain areas that have that differing level of uh, tree canopy, that's because of wildfire. So I think a lot of it is people haven't really gone out there and experienced these landscapes or the reality is they have, they just don't know that they are actually burned landscapes in the past and, and they've done just fine. So, so would you agree that that's just, a lot of people have not really either experienced it or really opened their eyes to what's going on in their hikes even.
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, I mean, there's a couple of confounding factors. Uh, first of all, the messaging from mm. the media and the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of Interior has often focused on the fact that these areas are are being destroyed, that these acres are being consumed. Um, and so they kind of fan the fears you know, of flames, <laughs> so yep. to speak. And, um, and so people, it, that's just been kind of indoctrinated. Unfortunately, what, what folks don't tend to understand is that they do that in order to perpetuate their uh, culture of, of logging the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of, uh, in, in other circumstances, people may actually go out to areas that have been burned, but they go out after the areas are post-fire or salvage-logged. And if you go out to an area that experienced a fire after it's been clear cut, then yes, you will certainly see devastation. Mm. And if you don't know that it's been clear cut and don't understand that that's what happened, then you will think that the fire consumed the entirety of the forest, which of course it did not. Um, So that's a problem too. But also, you know, a lot of the times the Forest Service closes burned areas and for years after the fire. So people aren't able to. Even get out there and and understand what has happened. What's changed. What's coming back. I mean um, There's a quote I think by Rumi uh, that talks about, you know, not being able to step into the same river twice Mm -hmm. Because it's constantly changing and that's how I feel about burned areas. Mm -hmm. Um, They are never the same um, You know six months after the fire, one year after the fire, two, three, four, I mean, they are in a constant state of um, rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. And the the species that come in, uh, come in at different times after the fire, if you're lucky enough to live in an area that has the blackback woodpecker or a three-toed woodpecker, these species come in almost immediately after the fire, um, and they can excavate uh, on dead trees that are still quite hard that haven't been softened by, by time and decay. Um, and they stay usually one to six years. Um, but then at like 12 years post fire, you start getting the you know, red-breasted sapsuckers and the Williamson sapsuckers because they're interested in a different component. Um, of the burned forest ecosystem, you won't find them at three years post-fire, but you will find them at 11 years post-fire. Um, and there was a a big study done in a um, in forested burned areas in Montana that was basically looking um, at the bird species that were there prior to the fires, and then you know just by happenstance a study area burned, and so uh, D- Dr. Richard Hutto was able to go out and study it every year after the fire and after 20 years he found that burned areas um the populations of the birds that existed prior to uh, had basically recovered to those levels or greater uh, at particular times post-fire so it it isn't a a destruction it's just kind of a reset Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that that has been so amazing to me when I go out in these areas is just the number of nests that you find in these bird area, burned areas. Um, we went to this Angora fire outside of Tahoe. And, um, and I, you know, the one time we went in there, I think it was five years post fire. And you could not walk more than 10 feet without finding a nest. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, white breasted uh, nut hatches, white-headed woodpeckers, blackback woodpeckers, hairy woodpeckers, northern flickers, um, and uh, mountain bluebirds, western bluebirds, wrens, all of them nesting. I mean, if you're looking for a noisy forest, go into a burn forest, um, because they are just so loud with the cacophony of life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one way I was looking at it, it's almost like wildfire is kind of like a stream going into a pond or a lake that kind of refreshes waters that would otherwise be stagnant. So it's this this process of rejuvenation and yeah, go out into these areas. There's a closure there. I've definitely walked through some areas that they say not to go. And yeah, I I didn't die. No trees (laughs) fell on my head or anything like that. Obviously you want to stay away from areas that are actively burning, but, and there is of course, in some circumstances, there are, occasions where there might be say some mineralization of the soil or maybe in plantations, tree farms where they cut down the log industry, cut down the native forest and put in a bunch of even age commercial tree species and they might've burned hotter than normal. So there can be some impacts on the soil, right? Once in a while.
1: Certainly. But, you know, in the whole scheme of things, even plantations, it's, you know, I think they have a maybe 12 to 15% um, rate of burning at higher intensity than surrounding areas. Um, I think the thing that we're seeing today that is happening is that these areas, especially the ones that are clear cut and replanted, uh, the fires just move through there so quickly that it, it reduces the amount of time that people can actually get to safe places. Mm. So we saw that in the campfire um, out here in California that burned down the town of Paradise. Um, Between the start of the fire and the towns of Concow and Paradise, there was multiple um, areas that had been either clear-cut after a previous fire on private lands, a little bit on national forest lands, but also just a bunch of thinning projects that were sold to the community as a way to protect them. And of course they didn't. Um, The fire just blew through there. I mean, weather driven fires uh, are, you know, there's nothing you should or can do to vegetation that will prevent a weather driven fire from spreading. And oftentimes the, the choices made for quote unquote management increase the rate that the fire travels through those areas when it's driven by the wind. So those are definite issues that we need to keep an eye on as we move into future fire years.
0: Right. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about the forest quote management that goes on that ties into the messaging. So as a journalist myself, I would say that a lot of what journalists write in regards to the scary, scary fires, it's number one, just because they're dumb. Like they just don't know what they're talking about. So I would say that that is a component to kind of put out there. Another component is they're trying to sell a story, right? So fire that is always burned, does great things to the forest, isn't the same as, you know, hiking area destroyed. So I think that's a little bit of it, but then it goes deeper, right? Then it goes into political motivations, it goes into logging industry pressure, and it goes into what the Forest Service is doing around the idea that, okay, wildfires are bad. And it's like, well, no. And they're like, wildfires are bad. And therefore, <laughs> what we need to do is we need to take the trees away. And then we're going to prevent wildfires. And, and to some people, well, I would say to your average individual who doesn't know much about ecology, it almost kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? Because you think about all right, around my home, doing firewise measures right around the home, a couple dozen feet around the home, reducing the vegetation. That that makes a kind of sense, right? You have a a tree leading right up to your house. That's obviously a risk for your home burning. You got to deal with the other materials in your home. There's a lot to do there. But so that that concept kind of like, okay, okay. And therefore we're going to go into the back country and we're going to cut the trees down and then you'll be safe from wildfire. So let's get into all of the things wrong with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, I mean, what you're basically talking about is the fuels narrative. Um, and that is, you know, rhetoric that that is prevalent in firefighter lingo. Everything is a fuel. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that sort of Just translated over to the management side of the Forest Service because it seemed to resonate with people and it just makes, um, you know, common sense, right? If you want less fire, then you should reduce the amount of fuel. So if you think about, like, you know, a campfire, if you only have one log on there, it's not going to burn, you know, that big of a fire. Whereas if you want a big bonfire, you're going to put a bunch of of logs on there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, I think that it, it, people hear that and then they go, Oh yeah. Um, but what they don't understand is that this isn't a campfire. This is actually a forest ecosystem and every plant and tree that's in the forest ecosystem is contributing to the microclimate of the ecosystem. So when you start removing vegetation and trees, you actually dry out the system and you create hotter conditions and you remove wind buffers, which means that winds can blow through at a faster rate of, spree- of spread. Um, and you also, when you're taking away the shrubs, you're taking away the nutrients that the trees need to survive. I mean, there's a whole uh, mycorrhizal fungi network. People sometimes talk about it like the internet of the forest that is under the ground and it's the way that the plants um, communicate with each other, how they share nutrients, how they warn each other of, you know, um, pathogens or, uh, you know, insect attack. I mean, it's it's a really interesting um, scientific area of research that's happening. But when you start taking out this shrub and that shrub, and you start making the trees be artificially 20 feet apart, um, you are completely disrupting uh, the very fabric of the ecosystem. And you're not making the forest healthier, you're actually making it unhealthy. Um, And all of these things contribute to how, uh, how the ecosystem responds to fire and how resilient it is to fire. So pretty much everything that the Forest Service is proposing to do in the forest to quote unquote reduce wildfire risk um, and make the forest healthy and resilient does exactly the opposite.
0: Yeah, so not only does this backcountry logging not stop the fires, it can actually make them worse in some circumstances. But one study that I looked at and maybe it's been replicated elsewhere was the concept that it's sort of like a needle in a haystack, these, quote, fuel reduction. So let's just pretend for a second that it actually works, which it doesn't, right? Let's just pretend for a second. Oh, yeah, you go in there and it's perfect. And, you know, the, the chance that the area you decide to thin is going to be that area that burns that year is pretty much, it's astronomically low. And then it's going to regrow over time because that's what nature does. And so let's say it's that 10 year window where things are thinned. It's almost like a, a meaningless effort. It's just sort of like doing stuff to pretend to do stuff, which is pretty much what it's all about. It's just about, um, look, we're, we're, we're making things happen and it's, and you're actually not accomplishing much at all. In fact, making things worse. So I think that's a pretty, good argument as well that this is not the way to do things. Another thing that surprised even me, even though I had been focusing on these issues for a while, is tying into beetle kill or trees that have been killed by other insects. Here in Colorado, where I'm living these days, and I used to live in Oregon, I witnessed some of it there, but we had a fair amount of beetle kill. There was a, quote, I guess, epidemic, uh, I don't know, it was a few years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, which, of course, like all of those, quote, infestations, they... They peak and then they kind of slow down and disappear, and you know, it kills the trees because that's what needs to happen. That's a necessary process. But one of the things is, oh, we need to go out there and salvage log, we need to cut these trees down because they're fire hazards. So, what they're doing here in Colorado is they're fueling this biomass facility that they built in this town of Gypsum, which is basically kind of like sort of dead center in the state of Colorado, and they truck trees in from a lot of primarily my understanding is beetle kill. And I actually went to a lot of these sales and followed the trucks back and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's literal clear cuts. It's uh, literally, I mean, I've seen a couple hundred acre giant clear cuts and they're saying, yeah, well, we don't want to do it either, but you know, there's beetle kill and all of it's going to burn down. And, and my research has shown that that's not the case, that beetle killed trees are not more of a hazard except during a very brief period of time when the, let's say it's a conifer, which, which these are, the needles die. So there's this brief period of time when the needles are dead and still on the tree, which is like a year or so. After that, it's less of a fuel because it's just this big fat trunk. And it's actually a lot of times the green trees, which are more likely to burn. So I'm not sure if you've seen that info as well.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'll just start with the first one you mentioned. Um, the study related to whether or not fire is actually going to intersect with areas that are "quote unquote" treated or where fuels have been reduced. Um, that you know, they're basically the research shows that it's like a one percent chance mm. that um, any area that has had "quote unquote" fuels reduction done would um, would experience a fire. Uh, During the time frame when that fuels reduction might uh, alter the behavior of The fire as it burns through those areas. Um, I think increasingly that uh, Is not going to be the case for two reasons on the one hand um, we're likely going to see more fires in these areas. Hmm. And so that could potentially up that 1% to 5%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this this argument also creates an incentive in Congress to do more fuels treatment um, so that we get that number up. So yeah. I, I find it, while it, it's accurate to say that, I don't know that it's um, the best argument just because Then people think, well, we have to do more, Mm. Um, but that's not true. And in the era of climate change, when we have mostly the fires that get large are the weather-driven fires that they can't stop no matter what they try to do. Um, No amount of alteration of vegetation will stop those fires. Um, They just, you know, there's studies out of Australia that demonstrate that Um, the huge fires they had last year in Australia there was an area that was prescribed burn, which is often thought of as the least offensive way to quote unquote, reduce fuels, at least you're not using a chainsaw. Um, But uh, it burned right through this largest prescribed burn they did on a national park in the country's history. So, you know, it didn't stop anything. Um, Oftentimes, one of the reasons they talk about uh, doing this kind of fuels reduction is in order to have less of an impact on the landscape, right? So they want to try to change fire behavior. So instead of burning at higher severity, it's going to burn lower severity. And by severity, I mean, it's going to kill less trees. The problem with that is when they go in there and do their thinning operations, they kill anywhere from 30 to 70% of the trees in the forest. Mm -hmm. Then a fire burns through and they're like, oh, it only had low intensity uh, effects so it only killed ten percent of the trees. So you add seventy percent and ten percent together you get eighty yep. percent if it had just burned normally in a fire um you would likely have much less uh, you know tree mortality and in addition it would be more variable you know it would be more heterogeneity heterogeneous I don't know how to say that word Mm -hmm. there'd be more heterogeneity on the landscape Mm -hmm. um instead of having the foresters going in and artificially saying okay we we have a hundred trees breaker we want to bring it down to 20. I mean so you know um it's uh it's complicated to tell the truth it's very easy to simply you know say fuels reduction. Yep, of course. Um, yeah, so with regard to beetle kill, um, you are 100% correct. Uh, dead trees, whether from drought or um, from increases in bark beetle populations do not increase uh, fire risk. Um, they don't intensify fires. Uh, I, I mean, there's been, I don't know, at least dozens of studies Mm -hmm. (laughs) that have looked at this over the year the only study that claims that they will actually increase fire risk or exacerbate fire behavior is a study that was done based on models Mm -hmm. rather than actual review of on-the-ground conditions in an area that had a lot of dead trees that then burned in a fire Um, so The only study that's found that is one that is based on pure speculation. All the studies that look at fire areas where there were significant numbers of dead trees are um, showing that it either a doesn't have any effect whatsoever or B actually lessens the intensity of the fire. Um, So, you know, I think it's again one of those things where people are just predisposed to believe um, but the scientific research doesn't bear that out at all
0: yeah it's and it's something that's easy to have a misconception about i know some actually pretty well-meaning environmentalists who are fairly knowledgeable on the wildfire thing and then they're still like yeah but all the beetle kill and i think what's (laughs) happening is it's our human eye we look at things and we're like well, that's ugly based on what I decide is ugly. So therefore it must be bad. But having spent a lot of time in deserts and stuff like that, I learned to see different kinds of beauty. So these days I look at a burned forest and I'm like, that's that's gorgeous, right? It's in all, like these swathes of dead trees here in Colorado. I'm not like, oh, that's a bummer. Poor Bambi. I'm like, you're welcome, Bambi. Like, you know, thank the bugs for, Creating a rejuvenated ecosystem. So I think a lot of it is just our faulty human perception, even from well-meaning people. and this this whole this it's it's sort of counterintuitive to say, no, no, dead trees are not going to burn more. So we so I do understand why people have that misconception, but of course, the logging industry and proponents like that are, milking that for all it's worth. So let's get into some of those specifics, right? Let's get into some legislation that's going on that you believe to be a threat to our forests and they're using this wildfire lingo of we we must, you know, destroy the the forest to save the forest from being destroyed or whatever they're saying. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Whatever their rhetoric is. yeah. 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 So I mean, with regard to the dead trees, there are numerous bills in congress right now that are focused on relaxing environmental protections in order to increase the rate at which dead trees can be cut down and removed from the forest mm. um, in a, a bill that's introduced um, by senator danes out of montana and senator feinstein out of california they are actually um, feinstein is actually proposing to eliminate a restriction that prevents uh, trees from public lands from being exported prior to being processed. Um, So raw logs, there's been a a law in Congress for decades that prohibits the export of raw logs from public lands. Um, And she wants to reverse that in order to accelerate the logging of dead and quote, unquote, dying, undefined trees <laughs> um, to who knows where, Japan, Korea, um, anywhere that wants to bring a carbon spewing boat into a port and pile on a bunch of logs and take them somewhere else. Um, so the the dead tree narrative is definitely driving at least four or five bills on um in congress right now to create new categorical exclusions which are um, a function of the national environmental policy act that allows projects to proceed without uh, much if any public participation and very limited environmental analysis Um, these are not good things for the forest or the ecosystem or the climate Um, there are also a lot of At least two replanting bills that are out there um, that are being pushed under the guise that forests don't regenerate on their own after fire, which is not true. Um, They regenerate beautifully if you don't go in and salvage log them. Um, So when you do go in and clear cut, you destroy everything that the fire return to the ecosystem. You mess with the soils um, and you destroy all the seedlings that are coming in if you do it more than a year or two after the fire. Um, And then you have to replant um, with nursery stock. And so there are several bills in Congress. The Replant Act is one. There's even a provision of the Climate Stewardship Act, which overall is a great act, but there is a provision for uh, increasing the amount of money in the Reforestation Trust Fund to the tune of $4.5 billion a year um, to replant areas that have experienced, um, you know, events such as a wildfire or um, a increase in beetle populations that has caused a lot of mortality. Uh, so these are very dangerous uh, provisions, even though it sounds like that's great. I mean, what's wrong with planting trees? Because 99.9% of the time, replanting is preceded by logging. And the more money they have to reforest areas, the more areas they can log.
0: Yep. Well, I learned basically when I first started doing forest advocacy when I was working for nonprofits in like mid 2000s that the agencies, so like the Forest Service, can't really get away with logging for logging sake as much. I mean, they still do plenty of it, believe me, but they realize, no, we have to have the guise of helping. So it seems as if pretty much all of these logging projects, these days are all this, um, you know, this legislation, which is basically just logging in disguise. It's like to help the forest. So what percentage would you say? I mean, just to pull it out of the air of logging, is going on these days on national forest public lands is tied into some pretend concept of helping the forest get better
1: <laughs> oh I, I mean i would say almost all of it um, even if there's a component of a logging project that they're actually up front and say we're doing this uh, for wood products um, I, most, I mean, even the clear cutting projects, it's a restoration project, yeah. it's a reforestation project, it's a fuels reduction project, it's a resiliency project. Um, yeah, and they all have components of logging. Some are more, you know, constrained or restrained than others. Uh, we had a logging project here, I live on the in the San Bernardino National Forest, and they did a logging project here which had a 10 inch diameter limit um, for pinyon pines, but pinion pines are an extremely slow growing long lived species. So right. when you're taking out a 10 inch diameter tree, you're taking a tra- out a tree that's, you know, much, much older than your grandparents. Right. Um, so, you know, while it seems on the face of the project itself, you're like, Oh, 10 inches. That's not very big. Um, you know, in reality, they remove like half the trees from this area of forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what comes in after you do that? Cheatgrass. And cheatgrass is an invasive um, species that is extremely easy to ignite. Um, so, instead of having pinion pines, which are hard to ignite, and native shrubs like rabbit brush and sage, you now have an understory of cheatgrass. And the tiniest spark can just set it on fire, you know. So the the logging is altering these ecosystems in such a way that is not actually making them uh, more fireproof. It's making them more prone to to fire.
0: Right. Right. But they sure know how to use the language. Uh, very Orwellian. Like perfect example of Orwellian <laughs> stuff. Even. Back in the day, the Healthy Forest Restoration Act. Like that was the perfect, like healthy forest, it's restoration. So that term, who's against right. restoration, right? Like it sounds like a great thing. And there's legitimate restoration project projects to do in the forest, you know, maybe ripping out logging roads and, and fixing up some stream beds and things like that, and maybe even some stuff in plantations here and there. Who knows? Although I'm pretty skeptical of that. But that's not what's happening. But so they use also the term thinning, which is like who doesn't want to be thinner, right? So it's like, (laughs) it's very clever. They, it's none of this is an accident. They are wordsmiths. They know exactly what they're doing. So, you know, freedom is slavery, that, that sort of thing. Slavery is freedom, all that stuff straight out of 1984. That's, that's what they're doing. They put it in all the language and it's even the thinking. And I, I think a lot of the public is misled, they don't have the time to do the research, although I do think more folks are catching on. I mean, thanks to work from you folks and others who've been working on this issue for a while. Some journalists who take a moment to actually research their stuff have gotten a little bit better <coughs> at, at writing articles on this. So I think, would, would you say that awareness is somewhat increasing, maybe, maybe not the, uh, maybe the percentage of it, I don't even know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I do believe that. I mean, I think we've even come a ways in, you know, uh, journalists covering Mm. actually wildfires. Um, You know, the the language is less hyperbolic when it's talking about the forested ecosystems. Um, You know, they don't tend to use words like moonscape or nuked. Um, anymore they tend to say charred instead of destroyed Um, so we are definitely having an impact there you know the hard thing is that um, everybody is more than willing to go out and cover uh, a wildfire when the flames are burning but trying to get reporters out into these areas a year after two years after to see the amazing um, rejuvenation of the ecosystem is much more challenging even though it's every bit as photogenic, um, the wildflowers, the, the, the birds, the nests, um, all of it are, you know, just absolutely amazing. But, um, you know, the moment's passed and it, it's not going to get as many viewers, right. Flames, yep. <laughs> you know, in the te- in the teaser is like, Ooh, I mean, poor fire. It's just way too mediagenic. Um, <laughs> It's you know it's just trying to do its good work in the forest, and there are things that we can do to protect communities from fire. They right. aren't very complicated. They aren't even that expensive. Um, there is one bill in Congress right now, the Wildfire Defense Act, which was introduced by Senator Harris, who is now the Democratic nominee for Vice President, and um, Rep. Uh, Jared Huffman out of the Bay Area. And this act focuses entirely on communities. It creates um, a new category of uh, FEMA grants to help uh, communities actually prepare to live with fire. So it focuses on defensible space around homes. Uh, it defines it very clearly as, you know, pruning. Uh, vegetation within 100 feet of the home. Um, it focuses on money for retrofitting homes, so putting on ember-proof fence, um, putting on gutter guards to keep uh, pine needles and leaves out of, the, out of their gutters for fireproof roofs. You do not want to shake roof um, in this era of climate change, whether you live in the Bay Area or the middle of a forested ecosystem. Um, my mom just finally changed her roof. Mm -hmm. Um, she lives in Livermore and there was actually a fire pretty near, nearby this summer. Um, and she actually changed her roof last year. She got Mm -hmm. a new, uh, fireproof roof. Um, otherwise we'd had shake shingles on that house, you know, in a suburb, um, for almost 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a good thing and they have, uh, vents on their um, guards on their vents for embers but you know across the freeway from where this house is is oak grassland and and you know woodlands and that can easily catch fire and with winds it could blow embers across the freeway that is perfectly um you know uh perfectly capable of happening. We've had fires down here in Southern California that blew embers across the eight lane um, interstate 15 between Los Angeles and Vegas. So, um, you know, people, whether you think you aren't living in a, in an area that's susceptible to fire or not, you really need to pay attention to what your house is made out of. Um, Don't stack firewood next to your front door, don't store newspapers on the front porch. Um, You know, all of these things will make it almost, you know, 95% to 99% likely that your house will survive a fire. Um, But Congress is still mostly stuck in looking at this as a fuels issue and wanting to focus um, billions and billions of dollars into Uh, manipulating vegetation in our forest ecosystems it's not the way to go
0: yep absolutely and a lot of this is also tying into biomass energy i mean they were doing some of this beforehand but i think that is it's the perfect storm in regards to they look we're protecting forests from wildfire even though they're not and that's not something we should be doing trying to do anyway we're getting this material and then we're creating this pure renewable energy, which it's not that either. So for them, it's, I mean, it, I almost wish I was on their side because it's like they have such a perfect racket going that it's I'm <laughs> almost envious. It's like all those pieces put together in just this perfect storm of propaganda. So do you feel like the the push for biomass is, is definitely a uh, component of this, even though it's not a huge element of our energy use currently, but might be more and more in the future?
1: Oh, yeah, it is, you know, it is in almost every bill in Congress, Um, whether it is simply um, additional money for programs that already exist uh, within the Forest Service. um, They have grant programs to promote uh, biomass on on public and private lands. Um, You know, the Feinstein bill I mentioned has um, $100 million to invest in biomass facilities um, and annually. Um, And the worst part about it is that they want to prioritize um, building new biomass plants in low-income communities. Mm. So I know you know uh, much more than I do about the biomass issue, but biomass plants um, are more polluting than coal plants. With regard to both, uh, you know, pollutants and carbon emissions, so you know, it's talk about an environmental justice issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even you know, most of the clean energy bills that are out there actually incentivize uh, and the proliferation of woody biomass, um, and so you know, something that we've never really focused on before being people who are working to protect forests. We now have to come through every single 900 page clean energy bill to try and stop the push from that end. Um, you know, the Westerman trillion trees act wanted to codify the false claim that, uh, burning forests for energy is carbon neutral. Um, even the climate, uh, Plans that are out there. The House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis and the Senate both promote not only biomass energy, but this um, this science fiction uh, solution called um, carbon capture, storage, and utilization and storage. So, for bioenergy, the the um, the acronym is BECS. You know, bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage. So you cut down trees. And when you do that, you increase emissions into the atmosphere while simultaneously reducing the amount of carbon that forest can actually absorb. Then you truck that to a biomass energy facility where you burn it. And then instead of that going up into the air, you pump it into the ground Um, sort of like the whole theory behind clean coal. Um, But unfortunately there's, there's no real fix there. I mean, if there's an earthquake, and as we know out in the West, we have quite a few of those, all of that carbon that you're quote unquote storing can just be put into the atmosphere in a moment. Um, it also there are concerns and scientific evidence that doing that pollutes groundwater. I mean, it's it's so far from a solution to anything that it's it's almost mind boggling that Congress is fixated on it. Um, But yeah, the the biomass component of forest destruction is gaining a lot of steam, and it is very enticing to politicians who want what they like to see as a win-win-win.
0: Right. And unfortunately, a lot of environmental groups have been touting biomass because it's kind of like, well, anything that appears to be renewable energy. And of course we need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels, which are extremely destructive. I mean, I don't even need to get into why they are, but the idea of just like anything instead, that's been a real mistake. And while a lot of green groups now are sort of saying, no, we're not a fan of biomass anymore. It's almost like too late. The damage has been done. That's been perceived as green. Yeah. So they're doing the cockamamie stuff, like literally pumping CO2 in the ground. It's almost like it's it's almost hilarious like I write horror fiction and like that's something that I would come up with as like here's a here's an evil here's an evil stupid idea like and and they're trying to do it in real life and it's it's pretty insane you know it's almost as if we don't already have these engines of uh engines in the right word but we don't trees are already absorbing and storing the carbon like they're already doing the work for us right we don't have to be creating all these other things that will really just be making it worse in many ways. So instead of just, we could reduce our energy consumption by a tiny percentage and that would make up for all the biomass that's currently being uh, utilized. Of course they do want to expand it. My opinion and opinion of other folks I know who study a lot of fossil fuel stuff is basically that the fracking boom has postponed the biomass boom, although it's been booming in many, many ways The thing about biomass is to downplay it, people will say, oh, well, it's only a small percentage of the energy. Right. But it requires so much material to create that percentage of the energy. So we're already taking too much from the forest for the small amount of energy that's uh, bioenergy right now. So any more of it, I I would say, is a major threat. So it's not just the green groups. And then to get it more, more controversial is... The Democrats have been the leading, let's just say some of the leading voices, although some of them, such as Senator Wyden of Oregon, has been a, if not the leading voice in the whole hack up the forest for our fake renewable energy. So if folks are trying to turn to, yeah, those dirty Republicans, like, yeah, they're usually on the bad side of this, but the Democrats have been using the whole, oh, look, we're protecting you from climate change and giving you healthy, beautiful, renewable energy. They've been they've been the cheerleaders for this just as much as other folks. It's great to hear that Kamala Harris has that home defense bill focusing on that protection of the homes, the thing that actually makes a difference. So that's great. But I think when we split it into that political binary, it uh, really makes it so well, I'm not going to critique Wyden because I like him on this stuff and he's the Democrat. It's like, well, he's in the wrong corner on these issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, fire is scary for people. Um, yeah. And it is it is happening in a lot of different um, districts for, you know, representatives. And they do not want to be seen as not doing anything right. about it. So, you know, but they're doubling down on 20, 20th century... Practices, and we're not in the 20th century anymore. Yeah. So we need to actually take a step back and do an approach that works. Like most recently, we we still have a fire burning on this forest, the Eldorado Fire, um, and you know it was really interesting to watch it, um, how they were fighting it, uh, when they had to pull back. I mean, these wind-driven fires and fires that are happening in extreme heat uh, have. a a huge impact on the ability to fight the fire from the air, right? Because the extreme heat affects the loft of the helicopters. The smoke prohibits the air tankers from dropping anything because they can't see anything. Um, And the winds keep everybody on the ground. Um, So they actually, on numerous occasions, couldn't do any more aerial attacks. And so they pulled back to the communities that were threatened. And the firefighters went in there and created defensible space because a lot of these people didn't have it or hadn't, you know, maintained it for this year. Um, they went into people's homes and closed windows. They took down flammable curtains. They actually even did some prescribed fire. Um, within 100 feet of the house, like behind the house, between the house and where the fire was moving from because there was nothing they could do to stop the fire. And they only lost, you know, out of like 10,000 structures that were actually threatened, they only lost five. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there is a way forward here, but if anyone is telling you that we need to use our forests, for renewable energy, and that's going to save us on climate and stop forest fires. They're they're just lying. There's no aspect of that equation that is correct. Um, and we really need our forests to remain standing. We need to step back and allow the natural processes to happen, so the forests can maintain their resilience even in the changing climate. We can go in and and eliminate invasive weeds and species. We can certainly decommission roads because roads are a huge vector for ignition starts. Um, And uh, there are things that are compatible with ecosystems that we could be doing. Logging and native vegetation removal isn't one of them.
0: Yep, yep, that's absolutely the case. And one analogy that I have, I like to come up with clumsy analogies that are just amusing to me, is that, so wildfire is kind of like, we can look at it like COVID, right? So firewise homes, protecting the homes, doing things around the homes, preparing that, that's almost like social distancing or maybe even like a vaccine for prevention. And cutting the backcountry forests, that's kind of like killing random people in the streets to prevent the spread of COVID. It's like (laughs) insane. Well, he might have it like, boom, he's dead and then maybe piling the body so it actually spreads the disease more. So that's my, that's my <laughs> analogy that no one will ever repeat, but that's kind of how I think of it. It's just almost insanity. Like Let's do the things that actually matter, but yeah, it's not as, it's not as sexy. I, I think the journalism, it's good that it's getting better, but I keep coming back to this cause I've been a journalist and I've written on this topic. And so there's the whole, idea that if it bleeds, it leads. I think with this stuff, right. it's like if it burns, it earns, right? It earns clicks and ad revenue versus uh, l- reporting on it in a different way or the things that need to be done with with homes. But one question I want to ask you is, so fuel breaks. So I recently, I hike a lot around Colorado and I go into places I'm not supposed to go a lot of times too. So I was kind of <laughs> off trail and then I've run into a couple fuel reduction projects on, one was on county land and another, I believe was state land. Yeah, it was actually state land. And so, so there, there are these kind of just like random fuel breaks that aren't necessarily really near where people are living. Does that make a lot of sense? I mean, it's, it's really limited compared to the rest of the stuff, but I'm just curious about that.
1: Um, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, for a couple of reasons. N- number one, if an eight-lane highway isn't going to stop an ember, mm. uh, you know, a 500-foot swath of of cleared area isn't going to stop an ember either. Um, the fires that get big, the fires that are threats to communities, are weather and climate-driven fires, and there isn't anything you can do to the landscape that is going to stop a weather-driven fire. Um, It's just, it's not, it can't, it won't, it does not work. Um, And this has been proven over and over again. Um, So, you know, all you're really doing is creating an area that's been degraded somewhere out in the forest. The only time that a quote-unquote fuel break could work is if it's really low fire weather and mm. if it's really low fire weather a we should simply be letting those fires burn especially if they are not near a community and b if they are near a community they are suppressible because it's low fire weather right so these are just they're they're completely ineffective and they are in no way shape or form necessary or helpful
0: yep well, this is a super important topic because obviously this has been a, I don't know if this has been a more, there's been more wildfires this season or just kind of the smoke has blown more in populated areas, which is more kind of what I suspect. But a lot of folks are becoming more and more aware of this. I myself earlier in the summer, uh, there was a, was a small wildfire it didn't get more than a couple dozen acres, literally two miles as the crow flies from my place. I could see the fire from from my place, so the, for the first time in my life, like, wow, I might be in an evacuation mm-hmm. situation. So I I understand how frightening that is to people, but I think I'd be curious what you have to say about this. Obviously, we need to do what we can to, in terms of making homes firewise, and that's extremely extremely effective. And we shouldn't be hacking up backcountry forests that does nothing and actually makes things worse. But is it that also? those of us who are choosing to live in ecosystems or adjacent to ecosystems, we might have to accept a little bit of risk, a little bit of the the chaos of nature, just like people who have beachfront homes. Guess what? Sometimes the ocean goes over the seawall or if you're living in a floodplain, guess what? Sometimes the river crests because that's what rivers do. And then wanting to tame all of these natural features because we want to, we love how pretty they are. And then we're like, but we expect you to behave according to our standards (laughs) Do you think, humans, we need to start to not accept that we're all going to burn up in a fire? Obviously, we we need to do all we can about that. But the idea of this is part of the risk of choosing to live in these ecosystems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we, we need to start thinking about fire like we think about hurricanes, right? I mean, you can't control a hurricane, even though, you know, President Trump wants to nuke them and seems to think that's somehow going to make it better Mm -hmm. um that's not really an option and and when you have a hurricane you get prepared for the hurricane you board up your house um if you rebuild an area you typically build on stilts you have a certain kind of roof um you know a Autogonal-shaped buildings tend to do better in extremely high winds than Mm -hmm. square or rectangular ones. You know, there are things that you do because you accept that this is a natural weather event. Fires are exactly the same. They are a natural weather event. Uh, More and more, they're going to become weather-driven we do have more acres burning in the state of California than we did you know, last year or the year before that, um, uh, or in the last 30 years, but not in the history of the state of California. Um, you know, pre-fire suppression, we had anywhere from four to 10 million acres burning a year. Um, but that's kind of neither here nor there because we have a lot more people. And so a lot more people are being affected we need to focus on that. Um, and it's not just the people who are choosing to live in, in or near the fire adapted ecosystems. You know, people in the Bay Area were inundated with smoke for almost a month um, without much relief. Um, and, you know, I don't think they would say I chose to live in an area like this. So I have to accept the risks. Um, I definitely think we need better land use planning. Um, But yes, people need to understand what is happening and they need to have the tools to be able to protect themselves from the, um, you know, the effects of fire on the landscape, including keeping your house from burning down and not think that they can just rely on someone else to do it for them. Um, Right. I mean, that's one of the biggest Uh, tragedies I think of this forest service and and government narrative is if we do this in the backcountry you're safe right but that's a lie right I mean that's a lie that's it's not even true so we need to get away from that type of rhetoric and really give people and communities the resources they need to actually be safe
0: yeah yeah I agree so they're actually distracting people and they're giving them a false sense of security which is extremely dangerous
1: yeah, and they're pumping all the money into ineffective, harmful practices that don't benefit communities in any way, shape, or form instead of, you know, I mean, $4 billion would go a long way towards retrofitting houses in fire-adapted communities so they wouldn't burn down. Then we could save money on firefighting, right? I mean, there's a, a way forward. It's a hopeful message, and it is a message that will have results As far as community protection, um, if we want to get out of this cycle that it appears we're entering with uh, larger weather-driven fires being more um, of the norm, we need to address climate change. It's that simple. And you're not gonna address climate change by chopping down trees. You're gonna address climate change by reducing oil and gas consumption, reducing energy use across the board um, and keeping our, our trees in the forest.
0: Yeah, that's for damn sure. So folks who are listening to this, some of them might have homes in these areas so they can pay attention to county and state and federal funding where they can maybe obtain grants for this sort of stuff. So that's really important. And if you're somebody who has been putting this off, don't put it off any longer, but let's say they want to engage in regards to some of this worst legislation that's going on out there. So what, what actions can people take? Is there somewhere they can go to learn more about this, to, to have talking points for their senators or congressperson or whatever?
1: Um, yeah, I think there's quite a bit of information out there, especially on the um, Dane's Feinstein bill, which has the, uh, misleading title of the Emergency Wildfire and Public Safety Act of 2020. Um, So we have a lot of information on our uh, website in our blog section, and that's uh, johnmuirproject.org. And then just click on the blog tab. And there's several articles there um, about bills like the Bruce Westerman's Trillion Trees Act and the Dane Feinstein bill. And we'll be putting more information up there um, as these bills move forward. Uh, I know that pretty much every environmental group out there is against the Daines-Beinstein bill. So I'm sure that they could find um, a lot of different uh, options out there as far as information goes on that. But really, you just need to call your senator or your representative. You can go online and there are websites that help you look up to find out who your representative or senators are um, and their information. You can just call their DC office and be as simple as we need to stop logging our forests. Um, We need to have federal dollars available so we can fireproof our homes and create defensible space. Um, these are really the the messages that need to get out there um, and for lawmakers to hear about. If you want to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, John Muir Project, um, we definitely have a lot of actions that we promote on our social media feeds where you can send emails in or call um, alerting you to what's going on, um, what hearings are happening Uh, that kind of stuff. Um, That's probably our most up-to-date resource, is our social media platforms.
0: Great. Well, thanks for that, and thanks for letting folks know about this super important issue.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Josh, and I know we could probably talk about this for another 10 hours without um, actually covering everything that we could cover.
0: (laughs) It's complex, and at the same time, pretty simple. Let's protect the forests and stop being full of shit, frankly. (laughs) That's basically (laughs) what it comes down to. So that's the talking point, everyone. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Rachel.
1: Right on.